This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hambrich. Today, we'll talk about managing aphids and the viruses they transmit with three distinguished researchers. We estimated a direct injury threshold, a level of aphid infestation that would justify a spray. And we had a second calculator that attempted to help growers who are concerned about the aphid as a vector of the virus, which is a different thing. In that case, we would say the nominal threshold is one aphid, because it only takes an aphid that's periliferous feed for an hour and you have a sick plant. Aphids can be a real problem in pulse crops due to feeding damage, but they can also present an even larger challenge when they carry viruses. Today, I'm joined by three researchers who have all done extensive work on studying aphids and some of the viruses they transmit to these pulse crops. We'll talk a lot today specifically about field peas, but we'll also mention lentils, fava beans, and chickpeas in different contexts today as well. You're going to hear from Dr. Lyndon Porter, plant pathologist at USDA ARS based in Prosser, Washington. Dr. Sean Prager, associate professor of entomology at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. And Dr. Sanford Eigenbrode, professor of entomology at the University of Idaho. There's a tremendous amount of collective knowledge here in this group on our episode today, covering aphid-related topics ranging from developing tolerance to the insect and resistance to the viruses in the pulses, to aphid sampling and host and aphid migration, to chemical options and integrated pest management. We cover quite a bit, and make sure you stick around to the end of the episode for an interesting conversation on the impact of a plant's natural surface texture, like hairs and waxes on aphids. It's pretty cool stuff. First, though, USDA ARS plant pathologist Dr. Lyndon Porter introduces us to the two major viruses in peas that these aphids vector and the current state of developing resistance in pea genetics to these diseases. There's two major diseases, uh, virus diseases that the aphids vector, peonation mosaic virus and bean leaf roll virus. We've identified a, an acetyltransferase gene that uh, is conferring some sort of resistance to peonation mosaic virus. And so the idea is we're about 95% accurate in determining whether a certain P-line has a genetic resistance to peonation mosaic virus. So a breeder can grow up a little plantlet, a little shoot, send it into a, a company that is using our genetic markers and be able to determine whether or not that particular line has genetic resistance to peonation mosaic virus. We have a, almost a perfect marker for pea seed-borne mosaic virus, which is also transmitted by the pea aphid, and we're, we're about to release this other marker with peonation mosaic virus resistance. So we have screened and we know material that the breeders can use that have genetic resistance to the virus. We just haven't identified the genes within those resistant lines of where that resistance is located. So we're working on that right now for bean leaf roll. And right now we have great genetic markers for peonation mosaic virus and pea seed borne mosaic virus. The idea is that breeders can send material in, have them screened so they don't have to screen them in the field. They can be told, yes, this is genetically resistant to the virus, and then they can start developing it as a cultivar for the growers to use. 
Entomologist and self-proclaimed aphid guy, Dr. Sean Prager up in Saskatchewan says north of the border, they're slightly less focused on pea and more interested in lentils and fava bean. But regardless of which pulse crop has the focus, he says aphids in general are a major issue for Canadian pulse crop growers. For us, they're enormous. And so that is one of the problems is that over the last few years, the aphids themselves have become a problem. It wasn't historically one especially in fava bean, but also in lentil, we can have complete field loss just from the aphids themselves in those crops. So you don't even, you don't even need the virus in that case, and you can lose everything if you don't treat the fields. We also don't have as much problem with the P nation virus, and we're not really sure why that is. So we have some extra questions or different questions to solve. There's something that's in there. But the other thing is that we have at the University of Saskatchewan, pulse breeders. So because we have the breeders here, but they're focused on the other crops, I sort of have to be a bridge between, well, Linden, between the breeders, between some of these pieces to fill in the blanks. But my, my research program, my job is to, is to try to look at both the aphids and the viruses, but to help on the screening end with the hope that the breeders can do the sort of the genetic and the screening end. Entomologist Dr. Sanford Eigenbrode at the University of Idaho has worked on some thresholds for direct injury of aphids. He says for viruses, though, just one aphid found carrying the virus at a key time is probably too many. We did work some years ago and have two publications that can help. Well, at least it helps for our region. I don't know if these would be useful for Sean, where we estimated a direct injury threshold. In other words, a level of aphid infestation that would justify a spray. And we had a second calculator that attempted to help growers who are concerned about the aphid as a vector of the virus, which is a different thing. In that case, we would say the nominal threshold is one aphid because it only takes an aphid that's periliferous feed for an hour and you have a sick plant, potentially. But that decision support is based on our data showing, and this is pretty common for plant pathogens, that young plants, if they're infected when they're little, they get a lot sicker than if they're infected when they're older. It's called sometimes age-related resistance or tolerance or something like that. So based on that, here, two weeks or so after emergence, it starts to become unimportant from an economic point of view. If you haven't been infected by then, a subsequent occurrence of the virus would not injure the crop enough to justify spraying out those vectors. Then you switch to the direct injury threshold, waiting for the densities to get up to the point where they can really destroy the plant just by feeding on it. So what we try to do, or at least what's available on our website, which is for farmers to use, is to encourage the use of both tools, depending on what they think is going on. And we also try to help them decide what's going on by sampling the aphids that are coming in and testing them for virus. Sean added that they also have concrete thresholds up in Saskatchewan for pea aphids on lentil and fava beans, including insecticide costs and lead up time to when you should spray. 
Linden says that giving growers real-time data on aphid presence and aphid levels has been a critical step to helping with management of this pest and associated diseases. He gives Sanford credit for being instrumental in developing this resource for Idaho and the Palouse region. The growers can tune in to an aphid tracker website by the University of Idaho, and they can see whether the aphids have been detected in the, in the area. And it kind of gives them a heads up to when to start to do their sweeps and their field observations to see if they've got the aphid there themselves to be able to manage. I know that that's been very beneficial to a lot of growers that uh, use that site just to have a good heads up of when the aphids are present in the, the growing region. And a lot of farmers hope that the next step might be to add real-time presence of the viruses themselves with this aphid tracking tool. Sanford says they're trying to get that information up as quick as possible, but it is difficult to get results posted in time to make quick management decisions. We also test each aphid to see if there's virus in it, and uh, we can put that on a map. We still haven't honed our skills there, you know, which is to get that up there pronto. Because the growers, all they all say, that's great, but by the time you post it, I don't know what I should do. Because they're trying to make a decision on a day-to-day basis. And these are virus signals from about a week ago. One thing that's kind of cool about it is I now, I think it's 19 years of this data. So we've been trapping, recording aphid abundance and virus presence, but peonation, bean leaf roll, and more recently, the seedborn. And it's all in a spreadsheet for anybody who wants to use it as a way of kind of understanding the dynamics. That hasn't been done, but it's easy to keep the data once you get it. So it's there. Now, you might be wondering, where are these aphids coming from? Where are they overwintering? And where are they picking up these viruses in the first place? Now, these seem like really important questions and parts of the story here, but as Sanford says, the short answer is we don't exactly know. We don't know for sure. Uh, we have looked for it uh, by, in our case, um, unlike Sean's situation, you know, uh, the Palouse is a high elevation and the aphids do not overwinter here. A lower elevation, even where Linden is, it's possible that they overwinter. If we go down there, before aphids have arrived here and sample in alfalfa, we can find bean leaf roll virus and we can find the aphids just waiting to take to the wind and come up. Well, we just published a paper about two weeks ago. I say we, I mean Robert Clark and Crowder over at WSU and I, showing the relationship between aphids and vetch, which is... Uh, a feral weed all through our canyons here, and uh, virus in the peas. So that, that vetch seems to be a relay crop, if you will. And some of it could still be infected from the prior season because it's not an annual. And so there's ways that that vetch can help as a source. Alfalfa is a host for bean leaf roll, but not for peonation. So peonation, we have to kind of look in the vetch pretty much as the source of that one. We've looked in like other wild legumes, but there's not very much of that stuff. We've also sampled all the way to Corvallis, not just because we like to drive, but because the winds are capable of bringing aphids from there in a single day. And so it makes sense to go there. And uh, in the Willamette Valley, there's vetch and it's infected. So 
Some years, as Lyndon was saying, perhaps the conditions are such, we don't know this, but that um, those guys are lifted out of those source areas, you know, that are infectious more than other years. And the virus could be fluctuating in those sources too. Pretty complicated when you start trying to come up with a, enough of an ecological understanding of a, a regional process like this to advise producers about it. But we do know the biology. And ben, when I first started talking about this, there were, there were farmers who already had this in their head. They're coming from the Columbia Basin. We were able to find individual aphids, genotype them, and find a genotype in Corvallis and find the same genotype here in Moscow, Idaho. So that means to us that really happens. They go, come all the way. Now, to give you a sense, if you're not from the Pacific Northwest, uh, Corvallis, Oregon to Moscow, Idaho is over 400 miles, which is just crazy to think that can be traveled by these little aphids in a single day. And that's just the start. The winds also take these aphids on international travels as well. Among those destinations up to Sean's region of Canada. We assume that most aphids we have, this is not really quantified, but the assumption are actually arriving on the wind. So we actually, the general belief that is, is that aphids that come to us are actually blowing in. So if you extend the patterns that Sanford is seeing and, and kind of take it farther across, right? So across the Palouse, it's very possible that that's where our aphids are coming from, but we don't know. So we don't know where our aphids come from, which means we don't know if they're coming from also alfalfa. We certainly have lots of alfalfa here, although where it's grown is a little bit different. If it's coming from sort of our vetch or our other things, we, we simply don't know. But the general assumption has always been that aphids fly in here. But that also means that it's very possible that what we see, which of course is also high aphids, low aphids, high virus, low virus, may be being determined by what's happening sort of by Sanford or by Linden or, or in the, you know, in those regions. And then when they get into the air and blow up to us, you know, another few thousand kilometers or whatever, whatever their situation is, whatever they're carrying when they get here is what makes our problems. And we've yet to be able to do any of the work to really extend that. So, so one of the things that has to be done is that we have to sort of take everything Sanford knows and kind of pull it up towards us, which is obviously difficult and time consuming and costly. Sean said wind models have become really important to try to track aphids as well as other insects like diamondback moths and aster leafhoppers. He said it's complicated, but every data point helps to put together the mosaic, the picture for when these pests might enter farmers' fields. But once that does happen and a farmer knows that they have them, what options do they have for management of these aphids and their viruses? Here's Lyndon. Try your best to try to prevent it from from spreading. There's the dimethoate, which is a foliar application. Uh, Sanford has been looking at neonicotinoid seed treatments to try to be able to slow down the initial movement of of aphids from one plant to the next. And Sanford, you've shown that that's been effective, and maybe one of the reasons why we haven't had huge aphid outbreaks of late. Is that correct? I would put it together that way. We did some plot work where we treated seeds with these neonicotinoids uh, and planted in small plots, really. And then we put infected plants in the center of those plots and just let the aphids have at it. 
And you could show that the spread from that nurse plant to source plant was suppressed by these seed treatments. And now most growers around here anyway are using those seed treatments. I don't know about in Sean's neck of the woods. And those seed treatments are controversial because it's not integrated pest management. It's prophylactic treatment. You know, you just put it on no matter what. You buy the seed that way before you know anything about whether it's a big aphid year or a small aphid year or a high virus or low virus and plant it. And that reduces the risk. And we actually allow producers to indicate on our calculator, did you seed treat? And then if they did, we apply a little adjustment. But the fact is they all seed treat. And in the last 10 years, the frequency of these outbreak years you know, has plummeted. The virus used to be a bigger problem than it is now in our region. And as Lyndon was suggesting, this is our hypothesis. And it's not you know, that this widespread use of these insecticides on seed has, for the moment, quelled the, the risk of virus. And talking to others who work in dry beans, where the same thing's going on elsewhere in the country, they think the same thing. Neonics on dry beans, they have to worry about bean leaf roll virus there, much less of an issue. But these neonics, you know, they may go away because there's some environmental issues with those that might preclude their use eventually. And then we'll be back in the hot seat, I think, with these viruses, in my opinion. And Sean pointed out that Canadian pulse growers don't have access to these neonicotinoids today. So it's for that reason and the threat that Sanford mentioned of losing these tools that all three agree that the long term goal here is a combination of integrated pest management built upon a foundation of genetic tolerance to the pest and resistance to these diseases. The latter is what Linden's been dedicating a lot of his research efforts toward. In some of the, the screening I've done, the best resistance is in lintel to the P. aphid genotype that I've screened against. As far as like less than one, one aphid produced on a plant in a 10-day period um, where they almost uh, appear to be shutting down the aphid reproduction to a huge degree. And in P, we typically see that our resistant lines in a 10-day period, the aphid can still produce about just below 10 aphids a day. In lentil, we've got better genetic resistance to aphids that we can breed into our lentil cultivars. In pea, we don't have as good of resistance to get into our pea cultivars. They're still producing, but so the resistant lines will produce right around nine, nine aphids in a 10-day period. The aphid will reproduce to that level on the plant, but there's also lines, uh, pea cultivars that will allow up to 50 aphids produced in a 10-day period by a single aphid. And so you can see the importance of having resistant lines to begin with so that we can cut down on the, the population explosion that can take place or the potential for that. But with P, there is a cultivar. The most resistant P line that I found is a line called Lifter. It is a cultivar that was developed by the USDA breeding program by Kevin McPhee in Pullman. 
And so that line is being used in breeding efforts. It has the best resistance to the PAFID as well as it is resistant to peonation mosaic virus. And it has pretty outstanding tolerance slash resistance to a bean leaf roll virus. So the breeders are, are know that. I've told them this and they're, they're uh, incorporating this particular line to a greater degree or re- recognize what it can do as far as managing aphids and managing uh, virus diseases. And as I'm sure you've gathered, developing this resistance is not a quick or easy process, especially getting it ultimately into commercial varieties that farmers can plant and grow. But this brought up the question for me of what are the the mechanisms that these researchers target to try to develop this resistance and intolerance to these pests? Sean half jokingly said that the answer to that question would take the better part of a graduate level course on the topic, uh, but he'd try his best to condense it down into a minute or two for us. That's it's a hard question. I mean, I'm joking aside, it is probably, you know, I could spend a quarter of a grad course talking about this. Let's start by saying that there's a difference between, in some ways, the virus resistance intolerance and the aphid resistance intolerance, right? I mean, they come from a similar concept in some ways, but the traits are different. We assume that plants by their very nature, have evolved traits when possible to make themselves unpalatable or otherwise unsuitable to insects. And on the other hand, we assume that the insects have found ways to use the plants because that's the way that should work is they need the plants for food. What usually happens is that the plant is coming up with one or another type of trait, be it a trichome or some compound that makes it untasty or that is poisonous or that's otherwise unsuitable so that the insect doesn't like it, or the plant's very physiology, so the amount of sugar or the amount of nutrients that are in its sap or whatever are not terribly suitable for the insect, so the insect can't use it as well. I mean, the simplest version, that's what it is. And from there, you can spend careers and and many students trying to figure out which particular traits it is that are doing that from, you know, a chemistry perspective and all kinds of things. But ultimately, it just comes down to the fact that insects are adapted to use certain plants, and when you switch up the traits of those plants, it no longer works as well. And the reason for getting to mechanisms, which is rarely successful, I mean, there's there's some we know very well, which is cool, it's wonderful biology, is to try to speed up the breeding so that a breeder can breed for that trait instead of having to put insects on and see what happens and if you can narrow it down to um, a mechanism that itself has a genetic determinant, that helps the breeders. You know, for like in corn, for a while there was breeding for higher concentrations of uh, mason, which is this phenolic that is uh, difficult for corn earworm. No clue for aphids. I don't know. There's uh, there's some phloem related characteristics in cucurbits that are known to be the mechanism that prevents them from getting the foam where they feed. And those are genetically determined. So it's hopefully useful to figure this stuff out because it's so much fun to think about. And uh, it sometimes can speed up the process. But if uh, the molecular tools can leapfrog that, You know, if we can just get the associations between uh, genetic elements and resistance, we can skip knowing, you know, exactly what those genes are coding for, as long as we can track them into the 
breeding lines. Chickpea is a good example, is an interesting example. So Sanford had mentioned that aphids don't particularly like chickpea, and we find that all the time. And in that case, we have a pretty good feel for why they don't like it. I mean, not not a direct correlation, but chickpeas make several acids that are very sticky and gummy, and the aphids don't seem to like when they try to walk around on it. And so that's almost certainly what the physical trait that makes them not suitable for the aphids are. But that's a very complicated set of sort of biochemical pathways that are unique to chickpea that you'd have to try to move into other crops. And maybe you wouldn't want to because when you start doing things like that, you never know what else is going to come. But that's an instance where we kind of do know what the physical trait is that's doing it. It's they get stuck, basically. And in addition to these compounds and chickpeas that Sean was just talking about, they have trichomes, which Sanford mentioned earlier. Those are hair-like structures on the leaves and stems, which also makes it harder for aphids to move around on the surface. Linden added that the thickness of waxes on the surface of leaves can also impact these aphids, as can the color of the crop. There are also volatile compounds released from the plant itself that can be attractants or deterrents, which breeders can focus on in their efforts. This is a really interesting area of research that combines entomology, pathology, plant breeding, and and several other areas of study. You could tell when we were talking about this that all three of our guests were excited to engage about their approaches to helping plants become more resilient to these threats. We've done some work on those waxes and uh, to add to the complexity, uh, variation in the wax affects that uh, predators that eat aphids. And some genotypes of pea have wax that is really good for predators to walk on. And those predators will take more aphids. And it looks like resistance in the field. It's not resistance. It's help the predators. That also helps parasitoids that attack the aphids. They walk better. They make more mummies if the wax is just right. Unfortunately, that wax trait is lousy for so many other things. It's a common problem with host plant resistance too. You get something that works against the insects and it works against many other things that are required traits you know, for an agronomically profitable crop. So. Yeah, the hairs are another one. So for example, we know that the hairs and the lentils also affect how some of the herbicides interact because they kind of get caught on it. So. If you have herbicide problems or weed problems, which is already a problem often in things like lentils, you then get a secondary problem where you may want the hairs to protect the insects, but they cause more indirect herbicide damage because of the way the hairs sort of catch the herbicides. And so, yeah, as Sam sort of point out, you know, these traits may be good in one way, but they're not necessarily always good in another. Some really interesting points there and a great take-home message about the trade-offs associated with farming and of ag research in general. I hope today's episode gave you a taste of some of the exciting work happening to manage the impact of aphids and viruses and pulse crops, especially in peas. And thank you so much to Dr. Lyndon Porter, Dr. Sean Prager, and Dr. Sanford Eigenbrode for engaging in today's discussion. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast so you don't miss our next episode about the latest research in root rots impacting peas and lentils with Dr. Michael Vunch. What happens is, is that if your soil temperatures are below 50 degrees Fahrenheit in that seven day period after planting, the root rot severity is way lower. I mean, you're cutting your Fusarium and Aphanomyces root rot in half. 
at those early mid-vegetative growth stages. And it gives the peas a chance to get a running start. Again, make sure you're a subscriber so you don't miss an upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the season. We want to make sure the information stays relevant to you. If you're finding it useful, we'd sure love it if you'd go ahead and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to tweet us at any time by using the hashtag growing pulse crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.